Hebrews chapter 10, and we are continuing our, our journey through this letter, this book to the Hebrews. Um, as we get into our text this morning, a question to ponder is, as a Christian, is your standing before God dependent on your faithfulness? Is your standing before God dependent on your faithfulness? The answer to that should be no. Your standing before God is dependent on Jesus' sacrifice and Jesus' ministry. So then be faithful to Him out of an overflow of the forgiveness that you have received and Christ's sacrifice, and the mercy that you continue to receive through His current and forever ministry in heaven. This is what we've been talking about in Hebrews. This is why it's so important to look at the priesthood of Jesus, why Jesus is our great high priest, because He continues to minister on our behalf. And it's why it is such an important theme for the author and for us to recognize now even a couple thousand years later. So let's read our text this morning, Hebrews chapter 10. We're going to do verses 1 through 25. Again, it's a big chunk, but I think we can get through it in a decent amount of time. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 1 through 25. I'm going to read it all, and then we'll go back and begin to talk about it. Verse 1, For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, It can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered? Since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, He said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body have you prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. When he said above, You have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings, these are offered according to the law, then he added, Behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering... He has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us. For after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them, after those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. Therefore, brothers, 
since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So let's begin back at verse 1 in our text, now that we have the grand big picture of what we're going to be talking about this morning. Look back at verse 1. And notice that the author talks about being perfect. This has been something that he has referenced already earlier in his letter. Let's read verse 1 again. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. So the idea is, as we see later in verse 10, we want to be made perfect. The people who draw near to God want to be made perfect. But what we should have been able to see, and what he explains here over the next several verses, is that you can't be made perfect through the old sacrificial system. The old sacrificial system, what the Old Testament prescribes, the law of Moses, as we've looked at the last couple weeks, could not and was never meant to perfect worshipers. It was never meant to make the people completely right with God. The Old Testament system was meant to look forward to, was to be a shadow of, was to portray like a painting, like a picture, the true reality that was to come. And that person now has come, Jesus Christ. And so we reflect back and we look and say, This is who Jesus is. This is what Jesus has done. And this is how he compares to what has been in place. And this is why it's so important for us to learn to understand what the Old Testament was about, what the Old Testament was, because Jesus accomplished all the things that the Old Testament could not. He fulfilled all of the promises that were made by God through his people from of old. The author emphasizes being made perfect. All all the same old sacrifices continually offered could never remove sin, could never remove its guilt, could never remove its shame. We could not be made perfect by the old way of thinking, by the old way of doing things. Look at chapter 7, verse 11. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, What further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek rather than one named after the order of Aaron? So he's asking that question there that we've looked at before. If it had been obtainable, which means it was not attainable. Look there at the end of chapter 7 and verse 28. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests. But the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. So the old law was not perfect, and it was never meant to make its worshipers perfect. But Jesus Christ, having perfectly fulfilled the law, through his suffering, 
now has been made perfect. Jesus has been made perfect so that we could be perfect in him. 2 Corinthians 5.21 I'm going to read it because I normally mess up quotes when I'm standing in front of people. 2 Corinthians 5.21 For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. We were still conscious of the need for full and final forgiveness. If we understood the Old Testament in the same way that the Jews should have and were meant to understand their own law in the Old Testament, they would have concluded, and we should conclude, that it was always meant to be a foreshadowing, a picture, a build-up to the one who was to come. And so we were still conscious of the need for full and final forgiveness. I mean, keep reading there in verse 2 of our text in chapter 10 of Hebrews. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins? He asked that question so that we would fully understand they still had a consciousness of sins. Sins were still needing to be dealt with. That's why year after year after year, the same sacrifices had to continually be made because the sins were never fully taken care of. And so their consciences could never be totally clean. We looked at our conscience last week. Can you have a clean conscience before God? Do you have a clean conscience before God? You can, but only initially through the person and work of Jesus Christ. You can't do it through some sort of sacrifice. Keep reading in verse 3. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, and so what the author here does is, as he has done repeatedly in this letter, is he looks back to the Old Testament and quotes from it so that his readers would see and understand that this was not a new and novel idea that this author is coming up with. This is the same message that God had already begun to communicate in the Old Testament through the prophets, through the writers. God meant for them to understand this even before Christ came. So verse 5, Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, and this is a quote from Psalm chapter 40, which I think we're going to read all of later on. It says, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body have you prepared for me. And burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. When he said above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are offered according to the law. Then he added, behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will, by that second way, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. The sacrificial system was meant to be a constant reminder, not only of our sin, but of our dependence on God to offer full and final cleansing from sin and forgiveness from its penalty. 
Hebrews chapter 2, verse 10. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, and bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. So what Christ has done is, having been made perfect through his suffering, what Christ has done is he has perfected us. He has sanctified those who come to him in repentance and faith. And he continues to sanctify us. I mean, isn't that great? But it's sort of strange because when you look at our text this morning and you look and you compare verses 10 and 14, look at verse 10. And by that will, we have been sanctified. And by that will, we have been sanctified. Okay. We have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. We have been sanctified. Verse 14. For by a single offering... He has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Now, doesn't that sound sort of, I mean, in some regard, contradictory or it doesn't match completely? I mean, aren't those two things different time zones that we're in? Verse 10, we have been sanctified. And verse 14, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. I mean, even just verse 14 in itself, he has perfected those who are still being perfected. What a strange way to put that. This already not yet tension, we see spring up up again. This is something that we see over and over again in the book of Hebrews. This has been accomplished, but we haven't seen the full and final effects of it yet. We continue to see the the growing out, the working out of the effects of what has been accomplished. But it has been accomplished. And one day, fully and finally, completely, we will no longer have to live by faith, but our faith will become sight. We will see, we will know, we will be with Him. But there is a tension here. And it may confuse some of us into thinking that Christ hasn't fully accomplished our salvation that we need to add something to it, that it's dependent on us in some capacity. We cannot be any more right with God than when we first put our faith, our trust, our hope in Jesus Christ as the risen Lord. We cannot be any more right with God than when we first put our faith, our trust, our hope in Jesus Christ as our risen Lord. You can't be any more right with Him at some later point than you are now, if you are his child, you can't be any more right with him. And so this effort to be more right with him when we don't feel like we're that close to him, we forget, we neglect the truth of what is told to us in passages like what we have here in Hebrews chapter 10. All the time, I am bombarded with the message that I need to do something else in order to be right with God, in order for God to love me more, in order for God to be pleased with me, or in order for God to be more pleased with me, that I need to keep doing something to hold or to attain or to grow my status in His eyes. Too many times I'm persuaded that I just need to do this and to do that and to be better at this and to improve at that. I'm constantly tempted to think in two extremes. The first one is I need to earn my way. I need to earn God's favor. I need to work harder. I need to work more. 
And this is a natural message of success in America. Half of our culture screams this and has been screaming this for hundreds of years. What has happened is that this message and culture has invaded the message of the gospel and a proper view of sanctification. It's not a new idea, but one that clearly tempted the hearts and minds of Jews and Jewish believers. If we have had a part in appeasing God, then certainly we'll continue to have a role in appeasing God even after the sacrifice of Christ. The book of Galatians is a great book for us to have so that we can see clearly that we cannot do anything to put ourselves right with God, that we can't add anything to our salvation. And if we do try to add something to our salvation in order to be right with God in the first place, then we have completely thrown out how you can be made right with God. You can't do anything to be made right with God. Christ has done what is necessary to be made right with God. What we are told to do is to believe that. Not that we have to do something to earn it, but that we have to simply believe that we have needed that sacrifice on our behalf. And so when we try to add something to our salvation, we are running away from our salvation. We are neglecting it. We are forgetting it. We are leaving it in the past, and we are leaving it completely. And I think this is why he's not afraid to quote from Psalm 40 and why verse 18 of our text exists. Verse 18, where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. There's no longer any need for more offerings for the sins that you commit, for the ways in which you are not following the path that God has put before you. You can't be put back on the right track with God by doing something yourself. You can only be on the right track with God because of Christ initially, and you can only stay on the right track with God because of Christ continually. Psalm 40's quote, as we see there in verses 5 through 7, and he explains in verses 8 and 9, they exist to make sure, once again, that even from the Old Testament, it was made clear to God's people and to the world through God's people that God has always looked for the one who would do God's will. He would make a body that was planned and prepared and executed as the sacrifice once and for all. God would be pleased. His wrath would be satisfied. The penalty would be paid through the perfect and complete once and for all sacrifice of Jesus Christ for the sins of the whole world. Forgiveness is offered, forgiveness is found through the blood of Jesus and only through the blood of Jesus. Beware of the first extreme way of thinking. We cannot earn our way to being right with God, whether initially or continually. And as we read again verses 10 through 14, it leads us to our second extreme. Verses 10 through 14 in our text in Hebrews 10. And by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, 
which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Our second extreme, we think we can earn our way. We think we have some part and capacity in making us right with God, whether initially or continually. It's one extreme way of thinking. The other way of thinking is, I deserve the way that has been set before me. I'm entitled to whatever it is that I need. Haven't you seen this in our society as well? Not only is it told to us that we've got to earn our way, that you need to do all this, and that that creeps into some of our understanding of salvation, but then there's that second way that we see creep into the hearts and minds of people where they say, I don't need to do anything and I don't need to believe anything in order to be right with God. I just simply am because I'm a human and I think everyone's good and it's all good. There's a failure to recognize the role of faith. Our culture has been shifting and our politics have begun to embrace this ideology that we are entitled to that which we have not worked for and that I deserve all good things simply because I exist in the world or I exist in America. Now, look, I, I don't care about talking about politics. I, I just don't. I'd rather talk about a dozen other things. But like it or not, both our culture and our political culture at large can easily lead us into one of these two extremes when we consider spiritual matters. We are affected by what our culture screams at us day by day by day. Perhaps all you do is grow cynical of it all. Or perhaps you jump on one of the two extreme bandwagons. What we must do, no matter your political bent or your cultural persuasion, is to recognize that what we have been offered has come at the cost of the perfect life of the Son of God, Jesus Christ. It's easy to gloss over the fact that Forgiveness is only offered because the cost has been paid. As verse 14 puts it, by a single offering. I am tempted to accept the free handout of salvation without a proper recognition or understanding of the Savior who paid the price that I couldn't pay to give me the forgiveness that I don't and didn't deserve. Have you ever had someone cancel a debt? that you owed. Look at Matthew chapter 18. Have you ever had someone cancel a debt that you owed? Matthew 18 is is all about sin and forgiveness. And in Starting in verse 21, we get this story of an unforgiving servant. And we get this picture of someone who has been forgiven a debt. I'm going to read this. Matthew 18, starting in verse 21. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but seventy times seven. And then Jesus goes on to explain. Verse 23, Therefore the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. 
When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed owed him 10,000 talents. Now, if you're not familiar with that, I mean, this is basically, he owed him more than could ever possibly be owed. The largest sum that could be owed, he owed it. There's no way this guy could pay it off. Verse 25, and since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. Yikes, indentured servitude, not great. So what does the servant do? Verse 26, so the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. Now, if the story ended there, I mean, that would be great. That This guy has been forgiven, a debt that he could never pay. He said, look, let me see what I can do to pay you back. And the guy's like, you can't pay me back. Even if I, all your kids, your wife, even if I put all of them to work for the rest of their lives, they still couldn't repay me. By the time they got to repay me, it, you'd be repaying like my great-grandchildren. I mean, is the idea here. Like, you never could do it. You could never get out of this. And I'm never going to see it. And I want to see this debt paid. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to pay it. I'm going to write it off. I'm going to act like it doesn't exist anymore. This is what Jesus has done for us. We said, we wanted to say, how can I pay for this debt? And Jesus said, you couldn't pay for it. God said, you couldn't pay for it. But I'm canceling it for you through the sacrifice of my son. This is the picture that Jesus is painting for us, that the disciples, as he tells the story, are beginning to see and won't see come to full fruition until his death on the cross and his resurrection. But we can look back on the story and see, this is what Jesus has done for us. I'm this guy. I'm the guy in this story. Not the one who's forgiving his brother or his servant. No, I'm the servant. I'm the one who couldn't repay. And Jesus paid my debt. And so how should I respond then? Well, not the way that this guy does. Verse 28. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. Okay, and so you see, you know, the the tension there. This this guy, the original servant, servant number one, owed $500 million. And then the second servant owes like, you know, I don't know, 5,000. I mean, you know, you could pay that off. Well, you know, I mean, you could work that off. I mean, pretty easily, you know, a few months, maybe a year. I mean, just give him a little bit of time. You could pay it off. No. And seizing him, there in the middle of verse 28, and seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. Man, what a horrible way to respond. Ouch. I hope I don't have any bosses like that. I'm glad I don't currently. Pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. The same thing that this servant number one says is the same thing that servant number two says, have patience with me, I will pay you. Verse 30, he refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me, and should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. 
Now, this story does not completely jive with our text and the point that I'm trying to make. And maybe you get just sort of a second subset of something to take away from the sermon this morning. But, but hopefully we can see that we have been forgiven the debt that we could never pay. And from that forgiveness, then we are supposed to act accordingly. If we really have understood, if we truly have been forgiven, if in our hearts and in our minds we have not fallen prey to one of these two extremes where we think we've got to do something to earn God's favor and where we think that we're just entitled to it simply because we exist, but instead we see that Jesus Christ has sacrificed Himself for us to pay the penalty that we could not pay to put on our account His righteousness that we did not deserve. If we, if we don't believe that, then we are no better off. And, and if we don't live in the light of that truth, then have we fully understood God's grace, God's mercy, God's forgiveness? We have to understand that God's grace, that God's mercy, that God's forgiveness is completely unmerited. And so our confidence then, as we live this life in Christ, our confidence then is in Christ and in Christ alone. Look at verse 19 of our text back in Hebrews 10. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, we have confidence to enter the holy places by what? The sacrifice that I offered? The things that I have done? No, our confidence is in Jesus and His blood that He shed. Sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. Not sinners plunged beneath all of their works. Not sinners hiding behind all of their efforts but sinners plunged beneath the blood of Christ lose all their guilty stains. Our confidence, our assurance is clearly spelled out for us as being in Christ. Our confidence is not rooted in our faithfulness, but in Christ's perfection and His continual intercession. The, the priest is there to work on my behalf. And I know that he won't fail me because his ministry is complete, because his sacrifice was sufficient. And so his ministry is eternal after the order of Melchizedek, as it says back in verse 12. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. His ministry continues. On our behalf, we've looked at this over the last several weeks. That's why it's important for the author to have made clear that Jesus' ministry is an eternal ministry, that his priesthood is an eternal priesthood. It's not like what we've seen before, but it's different and it's better. It's full and it's final and it's complete. And so as we come to look at how we are to respond, note that verses 19 through 25 
look quite similar to something we've already seen. The passage we looked at on Easter a couple months ago. In Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 through 16, let's read those and then read verses 19 through 25 in our text in chapter 10. Hebrews 4, verses 14 through 16. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. How are we going to find mercy? How are we going to receive grace? How are we going to receive mercy? How are we going to find grace? Not because, look, God, at what I've done for you lately. Not because of, look at how good I am, or look at all the great thoughts that I've had, or look at all the great works that I've done, look at all the people I've served, look at all the sermons I've preached, look at all the ways that I've volunteered in church, look at all the ways that I've volunteered in this community. No, your, your confidence has to be in Christ. And if your confidence is not in Christ, it is not in the right spot. We draw near to God in confidence because Jesus is there sitting, saying, yes, I've accomplished what has needed to be accomplished for them. There's nothing that I can do to add to that. And I have to recognize that it is that that has given me the ability, the opportunity to boldly, with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace so that I might receive help in time of need. Let's read our verses 19 through 25 in our text. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that He opened for us through the curtain, that is, through His flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. Why? Why should we hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering? Because I'm faithful? Because of all the things that I've done? No, for he who promised is faithful. He's the one who is faithful. He's the one who could do what I could not do. He is faithful. Not me. He is for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. As we rest in the finished work of Christ, let your faithfulness to God be an evidence of your sanctification, not your basis for sanctification. As we rest in the finished work of Christ, let your faithfulness to Him be an evidence of your sanctification, not your basis for sanctification. I am not made holy because of what I do. I am made holy because of who Jesus is and what He has done for me. And so as I seek to follow Him, as I seek to draw near to Him, as I seek to do work on his behalf, I recognize that this is work that I can only do because of him, that this is the work I do for him because of what he has done for me. This flows from the inside out. I'm not made right because of all these external sacrifices, these external actions. 
but because of him and because he's given me a new heart. And that's why he includes, again, this quote from Jeremiah in verse 16 and 17. This is the covenant that I will make with them. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Verse 17 should scream to us, find rest in Christ. You no longer have to pay for your sins. You no longer have to worry about the shame and the guilt that comes along with the sins that you have committed or the sins that you will commit or the ways in which people sin against you. I find rest in Christ because that is the only true rest that I can have both initially for salvation and continually in my sanctification. I rest in the work of Christ. And so we have three imperatives there, three encouragements, three commands in verses 22 through 25. It says, Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith. We can, with a true heart, Full assurance of faith. We can be sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. You can have a clean conscience before God. And our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. I think it interesting the order in which he puts those. What comes as the third one are the works. From this confession, from this, from this assurance, then springs up our love and good deeds and our encouragement to spur each other on to live how He has called us to live. And so we can live how He has called us to live only because of his death that gives us life. And so I love verses 24 and 25 because I'm all about, and this church is all about being connected in Christ as a community who, who stirs each other up to live on mission, to, to do good works, to show love, toward each other and to others, toward one another, to spur each other on. Because we need the encouragement. Because sometimes when we get bogged down in the sin that is so clearly evident in our lives, that we can lose sight of our only hope. And so we encourage each other to look to Christ. And that's why it's so important that we are connected in Christ, that we are connected to Christ, that we point each other back to Christ that we share Christ with one another. Not just from an evangelistic standpoint, but from a communal standpoint. We are sharing in Him. We are finding our lives in Him. And we are building up each other in Him so that then we might be sent out, so that we might be able to look past the fog and the haze of the sin in our lives and the sin that attacks us so that we can 
be encouraged by the witness of each other to look to Christ. And so that we can then do good deeds and work and love so that other people may see and know not how wonderful we are, not how holy we are, but so that they can see what Jesus has done for them, just as I understand and recognize and know full assurance of faith that Jesus has done these things for me, despite the fact that I owed more than I could ever pay. Because he knew that I could never pay what I owed. He came. He lived. He died and he was raised to show that he could pay for that for me. And we continue to proclaim that message, to encourage each other with that message. And we encourage those, as we build each other up, we send each other out on mission to proclaim that to those who don't know it, who don't believe it. This is who we are. This is who we continue to long to be. And we can only be it in Christ. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word to us this morning. God, would, would you have as our focus all day, every day, the truth of your word that our only hope is found in Christ, that we are sanctified not because of how much stuff that we've done, but we have been sanctified and, and we continue to be made more and more into the image of your son because of what your son has done, because your son has laid down his life, because your son has come. God, so help us. We need your help. We need your truth to register in our hearts and in our minds so that we would know and so that we would understand that we would fully see and fully hear remind ourselves that you have paid it all for us. And we look forward all the more as we see the day drawing near. We look forward to when we will be fully and finally, completely in your presence and who, who we can be in Christ because of what he's done. And so we look forward to that day and we continue to sing about it. And so we pray that you would come. So would you find our worship, our actions, our understanding acceptable and pleasing in your sight as we continue to sing and ask you to come. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.